So yesterday we read about the story of Yisro, Jethro, uh, Moses' father-in-law. Um, and basically there were, um, in the Parsha, there's, it's, somewhat, it's the shortest Parsha we've had yet. You know, I think it's the 18th Parsha or something like that that we've had since the beginning, since Genesis. And, um, <clears throat> and it's, it's, it's kind of basically two narratives. You have a story of Jethro arriving to visit the camp, and you have, obviously, the Ten Commandments. Uh, the the uh, Ten Commandments are recounted in two places in the Torah, in Exodus uh, chapter, chapter 20, and uh, once again in Deuteronomy, I don't remember exactly which chapter, but um, um, maybe chapter 10 or something like that, chapter 6, I don't remember exactly. Uh, either way, <clears throat> that's, what, that's what we have in the Parsha. So what happens? Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, he's a minister in a place called Midian. <clears throat> he hears about all the wonderful, miraculous things that happen to Jewish people. They have the ten plagues, the exodus from Egypt, the splitting of the sea. He gets all uh, galvanized and excited, and he says, I'm coming to join the people. He takes his daughter, Moses' his wife, Zipporah, who was, uh, who was uh, I'm sorry, yeah, what does that mean? It's a good question. Um, Is it a tribe? Uh, well, it's not. It's not clear what it means because Rashi gives us. Typically, it means that she's a person of color. Um, but Rashi says that she was not a person of color. Rather, just as it's inescapable that a person of color is a person of color, so too is inescapable that she had sterling character. That's what it says. So, kind of metaphoric. Just like we say, as the day means when something is so clear, it's like we know now it's day outside. You know, there's some things that are uh, inescapably true, undeniable, incontrovertible. There's no room for debate, you know? So, uh, that's what it says about her. So, what it means, maybe, she, you know, is it literally or this, that interpretation, whatever. She's a kushit, right? What, what does that mean? It's uh, up for discussion. So, Jethro takes Moses' two sons and his wife, and they make the trek to join the people, and they join the people, and they make a big party, Moses' father-in-law's here, everyone gets down, they break bread, and uh, the following day, uh, Jethro introduces kind of a, a system of, of organizing and outsourcing all the tasks of Moses, because he's, he's like, he gets in the white of the morning, he's Moses is sitting, and there's a line stretched out 100,000 people deep, uh, people ask him questions. The walk-in asks him a question. He answers. Next one asks him questions. He answers. And he's sitting there from morning to night. And everyone's standing waiting in line for Moses. He says, this is inefficient. Right? Why don't we outsource some of your duties, delegate it to people that can, that are, that are capable. So what they do is they break up the people into groups of 10, groups of 50, groups of 100, and groups of thousands. Every group of 10 has one guy who's a little bit more knowledgeable. And thus, a simple question, you just ask your, you know, your group leader, and that's it. And if it's more advanced, he can answer that. Well, then every group of 50, every five groups of 10 has a leader of that group, who's a little bit more advanced, and etc. to 100 and 1,000. If a question, the leader of 1,000, that 600 leaders of 1,000 couldn't answer, that gets to Moses. Moses uh, is able to have some sort of semblance of, of organized life or whatever. It doesn't make sense to have, uh, you know, the greatest... Uh, the greatest scholar to answer the most simple question, obviously. You know, only the more advanced questions get, get to Moses. That's the base of the first half of the Parsha. And then the second half of the Parsha, we have the most momentous event in human history, certainly the most significant of the Torah, and that is the Mount Sinai experience. 
And God tells Moses, tells the people uh, to separate themselves and cleanse themselves for three days. In three days, they're going to have this tremendous uh, transcendent event. And they get ready, and they don't touch the mountain, and all the, uh, the precautions that were given, and Moses goes up to the mountain, and everyone experienced natural prophecy, and the details exactly what they saw, and, and we hear a vision of the Jewish people, you shall be for me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, this is the Jewish people in the, in the, you know, in the fullest extent of their glory, uh, God promises Moses, now you will be believed forever, thus we find the distinct character, distinct nature of Moses' prophecy is discovered over here. Moses is a verified prophet because his prophecy was experienced in tandem with the entire Jewish people. Thus, if Abraham comes over to us and tells us, hey, I'm a prophet, we say to him, how do you know, how do we know you're not lying? There's always the element of doubt. Just like if Joseph Smith or Muhammad or anyone else comes and tells us they're a prophet. But Moses, his prophecy and, and, and his uh, classification as a prophet was experienced on a national scale. Everyone was there. Everyone was temporarily elevated to a level of prophecy. They hear God's voice. They see these um, uh, unnatural uh, just visions, and they, they, they see sounds, and they hear colors. It's, 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 it seems very, uh, you know, very supernatural. And they hear Moses come up to the mountain. It says that they, they, they say, we're about to die. Stop speaking to us. Anyhow, that's what happens. Thus, when Moses tells us that Abraham is a prophet, we believe him. Moses is called the father of all prophets. Why? Because his classification of Abraham as a prophet is what causes us to believe Abraham is a prophet. Not Abraham himself, because Abraham himself, well, he experiences prophecy in private. Thus, we don't know. Maybe he's a charlatan. Maybe he's pulling the wool over our eyes. Maybe he's lying. Maybe he's just mistaken. We don't know for sure. He's a good guy. Abraham is a pretty remarkable fellow. Right? But his word alone is not enough to sway a nation or even a skeptical, healthy skeptic. But Moses, we believe for him forever. <clears throat> Why do we believe him forever? <clears throat> because collectively as a nation, hundreds of thousands of people experience prophecy. We heard Moshe, Le'alhar, Moshe come to the mountain. We know Moses is a verified prophet. If he was on Twitter, we'd have that little blue check. Um, by the way, uh, when a future prophet, any future prophet who comes and contradicts the words of, of, of Moses, we spoke a little bit about this when we spoke about, about uh, why Jews don't believe in JC, uh, we said that because the validity and the uh, veracity and the believability of any prophet is confined to the parameters that Moses set. Why? Because we, our only reason to indeed believe a prophet is because of Moses. Thus, if a prophet comes to contradict the words of Moses, by definition, we're not, we're not going to believe him. The only reason why we would believe him is because Moses told us to believe him. Right? And Moses, as the father of all prophets and a verified prophet, his prophecy is going to uh, over, overrule any other prophecy. Thus, uh, in, the, in the 16th century, we had uh, probably uh, hmm, the most traumatic or the, the, the event that had the longest, the negative event, calamitous event that had the longest uh, aftershocks affecting the Jewish people since probably the destruction of the temple uh, was the false messiahhood of Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi, exactly. Uh, as a false prophet, and in Jewish history, we, we know we've had a few of those. Uh, a false prophet, false messiah. Uh, but his 
the impact that he had, the negative impact that he had on the Jewish people um, was far greater than, let's say, even J.C., because, you know, J.C. was, uh, from the very beginning, the Judeo-Christian movement, as we spoke about, broke away and became a distinct Gentile um, religion, which we've had our ups and downs with them over the years, but internally it wasn't as uh, as traumatic or as chaotic or as uh, um, uh, deleterious to us as a nation. Shaftai's feet comes along, and before you know it, a third, up to half of the people, are making plans to move to Israel. Right. We're, we're selling our houses, selling our business, we're moving to Israel. This is it. This The temple's going to be rebuilt, and we're going to go back to Israel. And people really invested a lot into this belief. Comes along Shabtai Tzvi, he ends up in Israel, I don't know, he ends up in Turkey, I think, in, in Istanbul, or Constantinople, as, was, as it was called then. And uh, the sultan tells him, oh, if you don't give up your uh, shenanigans, uh, we're going to execute you. So he says, okay, fine, I'll become a Muslim. So he became a Muslim. Can you imagine? How traumatic was that uh, for the Jewish people when suddenly uh, who the individual who was going to be who was going to be the Messiah and take the Jews out of this darkest period, he's converted to Islam. <laughs> okay. When did this happen? This happened in the uh, 17th century, 1600s, the exact dates. There's a, whole, there's a whole story, maybe if we get to it, if we ever progress in our discussion of uh, Jewish history past the first century, we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. Um, but the effects of that are still felt today. Because we are so wary of anyone who dips their toes um, into the whole messianic, uh, just the word, the word messianic, like when you hear the word messiah as a Jew, you pro- it sounds like fingernails and chalkboard. That's what it sounds like. That's what it should sound like. Because we have such collective national trauma from that particular event and how it tore apart the Jewish people. We have centuries later, we have these titanic debates as to was someone a closeted Sabbatine, they call them. The people that even after he converts to Islam, he converts to Islam, and then he still has his, uh, the people that endorsed him and his supporters, they're still saying, oh no, this is all part of the thing and it's a test and whatever. You know? So, which is, by the way, a problem. Once, if someone is so heavily, quote unquote, married to an idea or to a movement, and it's ultimately proven false. It's very, very hard to abandon that because essentially what you're doing is you're admitting that your life and what you espoused and what you believed in and what you supported and what you sweated over was a farce. So uh, that, that's, you know, that's a bit dangerous. So what happened? So they, they pivoted. Well, he's Muslim, whatever, uh, but it's still part of the plan. And he had his um, promoter, kind of like he was his Don King. Uh, a fellow by the name of uh, Nathan of Gaza, who was the real, uh, he was the real uh, power or the, the force behind the movement. Anyhow, so I don't so, remember how we so got there. what did they say that he was going to all of a sudden unconvert from Islam and become a Jew again and, and lead everybody to, I mean, how, what did these apologists Oh, uh, well, yes, say? I'm saying uh, those were just the diehards, you know. Okay. They, you know, they, they concocted something. Uh, but even hundreds of years later, there were the, there were people of, of great character and scholarship that were accused of being closeted Sabbateans. Like the famous controversy, the, I don't want to get into this too much, but the, the Emden and Ibishitz controversy, Google it, it's a 
crazy story. Insane. Uh, basically, think of it as like one of the greatest rabbis of the 18th century. Two greatest rabbis happen to live in the same town, which is remarkable, same small little town. And then one guy, one of them says, oh, by the way, this other rabbi, he's a Sabbatine. He really believes in Shabbat Tzvi. What's a Sabbatine? Which was the people, those are the people that, that, that follow Shabbat Tzvi. And that tore apart the Jewish people. Tore apart. And he, he had a print, he was a, Rabbi Emden, his name was J.M. Emden. Uh, he was a, well, he was a great scholar. Everyone agrees about, about that. But he was also a little bit quirky, shall we say. Like, it, we're talking about in the, the, the 1750s, he had a printing press in his basement. And he would, like, print all these stuff. And he had, uh, he was, he spent his life, basically, proving that his neighbor, who was a scholar of incredible renown, like a, a scholar we have today, today, we have extant 120 publications Scholarly publications. Some of them are just so fundamental to any scholarship that we have anywhere. Every bookshelf that has uh, the essential books of Jewish scholarship will have a, a whole bunch of it from him. Like, and he says, "Oh, by the way, he's a Sabbatine, you know." And uh, proofs, and he, and you know, the story is insane. But either way, back to Moses as we started. Uh, when Moses tells us the law is X, Y, or Z, no future prophet can change that. Shabtai Tzvi, the people that called him out as a fraud before everyone knew he was a fraud, they pointed to things that he did against Moses, that Moses wouldn't have approved of. And he says, well, listen, the Messiah is coming, things are different. You know, he engaged in uh, illicit uh, sexual activities. He would do things, he would say things that you were not supposed to say under Jewish law. And he was saying, and he, 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 he justified it under the premise, well, Messiah is coming, and thus we could change everything a little bit. A little bit tweaking here, a little bit tweaking there. Um, and a lot of the people realized this is not the way it's supposed to be because this is coming in conflict with Moses, you know. And even, you know, even, even minor things like Jewish customs that he made light of or he didn't practice was enough for, uh, for some of the uh, more intuitive analysts of his candidacy to, um, to determine that he was a fraud. Like, for example, he would sit like this. Like this, he would sit. And the, 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 the halacha says that a, that a scholar rabbi doesn't sit slouched, all slouched over. Okay. Some Except on Passover. Well, so the, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, so that's Shabtai Tzvi, that's Moses. We, thus, our um, uh, association relationship with Moses is different than any, any other prophet. The father of prophets, we only believe in future prophets because we believe in Moses. Uh, the Ten Commandments, obviously. Ten Commandments is the bedrock, the, f- the foundation of, uh, you know, obviously our religion, but I would say, you know, we could say the morality in the world. It's, you know, even, even atheists believe in the Ten Commandments. You know, the, the impact of the Ten Commandments, it's this is how we look at a moral, a just society. You know, that's in this, in, in, in this, in this week's Parsha. Uh, we look at the Ten Commandments as a microcosm of the entire Torah at large. Thus, these ten, if you extrapolate them, it contains within all of them the elements of the entire Torah. So, it's like the Noahide law. 
Well, no high laws is a little bit different because it's it's seven it's seven fundamental laws, but and and there and there um, a functioning society has to have those seven laws. This is a step up. This is the Torah, not just to have. We don't settle for media for just functioning society. We call mediocrity or a baseline for civilization, which is the seven seven Noahide laws. You, know, you cannot have a functioning society without the seven Noahide laws. We're saying here is this a step up? As Jews, we are demanded of a lot more than just to have a functioning society. What's expected of us is the responsibility of carrying the carrying the burden of mankind on our shoulders. But the Ten Commandments also refer to as the Ten Minimums. The Ten suggestions. The baseline for which the civilization They're called the Ten Words. Yeah, well, they're called the Ten Words. The Ten Words, well, yeah. they, 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 they're called Ten Words. With Ten uh, Statements. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I would agree, but I think there's an element of morality that's above just the baseline of civilization. I, I didn't, there is overlap. We would agree. There is overlap as well. Um, Which distinguishes as, Jews from the rest of the world, right? That's Jewish what we would say. Yes, yes. Uh, but I do think today as a society at large, not just the Jewish people, we would say that the Ten Commandments more or less are... You know, are what we accept as societies means. I, I think society has kind of upgraded from seven Noahide laws to the Ten Commandments, uh, more or less. Now, but if you actually look at the Ten Commandments, what's the first one? First one is believe in God. What's the last one? Booyah! Thou shall not covet. Not your not what your friend ha- has. Not his house. Not his car. Not his wife. Nothing that he has. And we always look at the beginning and the end as being kind of a, a one long string, one link between just the idea of faith, like believe in God, right? have that basic moral fiber. That extends, well, thou shalt not covet. Remember, when it says thou shalt not covet, it doesn't mean thou shalt not act upon your desires of coveting your friend's wife, his car, his house, etc. You say it does not mean it means you no. It means you shouldn't covet. Don't even want it. Think about it. Now that's a, obviously a much greater demand. It means not only don't you you know try to usurp your friend and getting his house or his car or whatever. Don't even want it. Right. That is a manifestation of faith on such a deep level, where I believe that the Almighty has a plan for me. Whatever I have is whatever I need. Whatever I have is whatever I deserve. Whatever I have is what's right for me. Whatever my friend has is right for him and what he deserves. And I don't even desire what he has because I believe that God has a plan and God allocated to everyone what they need, what they deserve, and what that's what they have. So that is, if you take a look at the beginning and the end, it's like, uh, it, it, it's the full spectrum of what the demands of faith that the Torah is expecting of us. Not only believe in God, believe in God to such an extent where that uh, uh, the, the commandment of thou shalt not covet makes sense, it's fair, it's reasonable because at the highest levels of faith even the feelings of desires force what is not mine dissipate but if you have that, you have basically a medieval static society if I don't want my neighbor's car not his car particularly but a car like my then I'm not going to go out, get a great education, work 
Yeah, I, 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 and I think that there's a distinction. I think there's both could still be true. Of course, we demand the most of ourselves, and as Jews, we know that's one of the characteristics of Jews worldwide is that they don't settle, that they're always trying to shoot for the top in whatever field that may be, um, as we know uh, very well. Uh, and I still think that that could be true. That the me wanting a better life and me wanting to improve my lot does not necessarily mean that I cover what my fr- my fellow is. Like I said, I want a nice car. I don't want his car. I want right. a nice car. I think that, you know, yeah. I don't covet his stuff and look at his stuff and peek through my blinds and like, look, yeah, you know. Like. Yeah, I want, yeah, or better. Yeah. Better. Why? <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, I mean, that, that's, yeah. that's, 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 that is the Jewish attitude. You know, we're, we are saying that we, as God's chosen nation, however we're going to understand that we get the, the, the fine details of what that means. But what it for sure means is that we don't settle for mediocrity. We shoot for the top of whatever area and arena of, of, of whatever measure of success you're going to use, we want to make sure that we're in the top. Yeah, I mean, maybe the implication is, is that if you specifically target your own neighbor's stuff, then it could lead to stealing from, or, you know, as opposed to doing it on your own, building but your remember, own. But one remember, one, uh, one of the other of the Ten Commandments is don't steal. Thus, independent of the prohibition against stealing is, on a much higher level, don't covet. Doesn't mean you should be happy and just, you know, just sit around and just let life pass you by. Of course not. But there's still, I think there's room for a difference between coveting what your fellow has and wanting your better life, maybe in a way like your neighbor or the community or whatever. Well, I, I'm sorry. I think ideally, like, if you're getting it, like, in, in the whole sense, it's not ever going to be about stuff. Like, you're going to pursue the most that you can, and you're going to do the best that you can in service to God. Like, you're going to want to make the most of the abilities and opportunities that God has given you to honor God. And then you're also going to want to use the best of your abilities to build and improve your community and take care of other people in honor of God. And then stuff will come with that because that's how society works, you know? Yeah. It's not. It's not that you go to school and get a good job. Well, some people do go to school and get a good job so they can have good stuff. But ideally, you're going to do this because you want to be the best that you can and improve the world around you. And society will have a tendency. God through society will have a tendency to reward that. I think, mm-hmm. and then you'll get stuff. I mean, there are people mm-hmm. who really serve God, do the best they can, and live in poverty. But there are also people who don't. So, I don't know. Well, and I mean, uh, I would. Hate to think that the intent of God is nobody should try and create. Who said that? Because, I never said that. No, and I know you didn't. I, no, say that. but no. I mean, some people might try and but say that's that. That's the backside of her argument. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Like Bill Gates, no one has more than him. But yeah. very, I don't think anybody's given. Now, I don't know if he does it for religious reasons, but no. he has helped more of the less fortunate than, than virtually anyone else. And yeah. he couldn't do that if he didn't create the wealth. On his own, he did. Why do we? Why does a study have to have a ten? Why do we have to look at? And we're talking about wealth creation so negatively. It's a very positive thing. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with that? Have, you know, that's you know that's why you know our country. Well, part of it is we have an administration that sends that message. <laughs> oh, we're back. I don't mean to get into that. <laughs> well, you know, but I'm trying to answer. That's sincerely what I yeah. believe the answer to your question. No, well, I, I'm you saying know, like one, in, of, one of the problems ahead. today of corporate America. In, in the beginning, um, if you provide a service for someone, and if that's the thought of it, you provide a service for someone, and you're not creating wealth, you're creating a service for someone. Whether the wealth comes or not is 
doesn't make any difference. But corporate America is when it turned to bean counters. I'll, I'll use Motorola for an example. When, when Paul Galvin started Motorola, he started in a garage, and he, he said, there's got to be a way to provide communications from the police car, you know, back to the police headquarters. And so he provided a service. He basically invented the police radio. And as long as he provided that service, then it began to build. He wasn't building wealth. That wasn't his purpose. But the moment that corporate America turns around and say, how can we make money? That's where the problem comes. The idea of fulfilling a service to people is gone. And the idea is now to make money. Well, but I'm not sure, uh, Dick, you who I consider, from what I understand, a fairly conservative capitalistic guy, I mean, you almost were making an argument against it right there. Because certainly there's no. more than just police radios. Well, yes, if Motorola wanted to make no, money think, and they feel I think they what could, he's saying is, is that if the business strategy is just about monetization, it's not going to make a lot of money. to God. It's not the money came. This is the Bill Gates story. I don't think he started out to build wealth. He started out to provide the intellect to build something that would help people. And wealth came as a result of that. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, but it couldn't have gotten to the extent there had to be something motivating him. I mean, I think wealth or money, as you put it, is a reflection. If you have a lot of it, unless you steal it from someone, which nobody here supports, if you have a lot of it, it's just a reflection of what you have provided for the greater good. Otherwise, you wouldn't have anybody showing you the wealth wouldn't come because nobody would be interested in what you have. If well, there's not, no value. Yeah, but he, he provided jobs for people. He provided okay. service okay. for them, et cetera. And I think that's great. Yeah, I don't know. Either way. <laughs> okay, so uh, back uh, back to Yisro. So that's the parsha, basically. Um, we had that's the, the the two stories: the arrival of Yisro, his wonderful suggestion, and the momentous experience at Mount Sinai. So now um, there's actually a debate. We know the Torah is not written necessarily in chronological order. Right. This is a big mistake that many of the um, uh, higher Bible criticism experts um, miss. In the Bible 101 class is that, as evident many, many, many times, very clearly, the Torah is not necessarily in chronological order. Uh, thus, we find a disagreement as to whether or not this particular parsha and the two major events that happened, if they happened in the order in which they're presented. There are those that say that Jethro arrived between the Exodus and 50 days later, the Mount Sinai experience. We know the Exodus happened on the 15th day of Nisan. Seven days later, they had, uh, they had the, it was the splitting of the sea. And then um, another 43 days later is the Mount Sinai experience. Um, there are those that suggest or want to argue, present the position that Jethro, Yisro arrived in between that. means he came from Midian. <laughs> came from Midian. There are those that say he came afterwards. Now, according to those that say that Jethro actually came afterwards, we have to ask ourselves a very basic fundamental question, and that is, why would the Torah go out of its way to present the order of, of the events uh, in a way where it's out of chronological order, that you know, first it should have said the story of 
Mount Sinai, and then tells the story of Jethro, if it's so relevant. So, um, perhaps the perspective is as follows, and this is how it's going to segue to patients. There's something remarkable about the story of Jethro, so remarkable, and it's so essential, pivotal, crucial to the Torah story that it has to be told beforehand. It may have happened afterwards. I don't know, four months afterwards, four years afterwards. Who knows when it happened afterwards? Let's assume it happened afterwards. Despite the fact that it happened afterwards, when we're going to teach the lesson of Jethro, we're going to tell it before the Torah because it is a prelude. It's a precursor. It's a necessary preamble for the Torah as an introduction. If you want to maximize the impact of the Torah and the Torah experience that was given at Mount Sinai, you have to incorporate within yourselves the lessons of Jethro. Now, Jethro, what happened? What's the first words of the Parsha? Vayishma Yisro. And Jethro heard everything that happened to the Jewish people. They left Egypt, the template, split in the sea, etc. That's what he that's what happened. He heard it. All the way in Minyan, the news spread of this wonderful, transcendental uh, um, uh, redemption, exodus from Egypt. Everyone heard this. Yisra heard it as well. Now, we find only one account of someone acting upon that information. We only find one story of one individual, right? Yisro, Jethro, of saying, you know what? I'm going to change my life. I'm going to leave my family. I'm going to leave my job, I'm going to leave my position, I'm going to leave everything, my community, and come join the people. The impact of the information changed him. It was an impetus for him to decide to make a change in his life. I think this is, we talk about Musa, this is it. The most important characteristic of the Torah, of, of, the, of, of the morality of Musa that we talk about, is the ability to apply what you hear to yourself. We talked about this a few times. It's a common thread in our classes here, that there's this gulf between what you know and what you do, your head and your heart. Perhaps everyone found out about what happened to Jewish people at Mount Sinai and uh, 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 leaving Egypt. Perhaps everyone knew about it. You know, Yisro heard about it. His neighbor, neighbor probably heard about it. You know, you, you maybe made the news. You read it on online or you read the paper and you saw, wow, what a wonderful story. The Jewish people had this excess. Okay, let's move on to the uh, uh, Weekend Review or uh, let's see what, uh, uh, you know, what movies are, uh, or the book review or the sports section. Yisro is the embodiment of someone who says, this story is going to change me. I'm going to apply the story to myself. I'm going to do something different as a result of what I now know. He had the quality of self-critique and self-application. Perhaps the Torah changed the order of the narrative from the chronological to out of order to tell you that if you want to actually maximize these Ten Commandments that we're going to tell you as the baseline for whatever else is going to happen in the Torah, you want to maximize it, you want to have the full impact, you've got to follow the model of of Yisro, of Jethro. You have to learn the quality of self-application. You have to take the information and internalize it to yourself. When something else happens... What does it mean for me? How do I change my life now? How does this impact me? How do I act differently? There's a great uh, statement in, in, in the Talmud. 
So the Talmud, once again, it's, also, it's somewhat of an chronological uh, question. Uh, we know the Talmud, or the Mishnah, is comprised of 63 different books, and it's broken down into sections. We spoke about this um, briefly. Um, you have a section called Nashim, which means uh, women, all women-related issues, so marriage, divorce, uh, marital contracts, etc. Everything that happens in matrimony. And, with, and thrown in there, you have, the, you have the book of Nazir. Nazir is an individual who decides to accept upon himself an oath of Nazirus, wherein for a minimum of 30 days they cannot drink wine, nor can they uh, come in contact with dead people, or even drink, uh, gra- eat grapes or any grape derivatives. And the content of the book of Nazir really has no place in the section of matrimony. It belongs in the section of the sacrifices. Why? Because the vast majority of the content of the book deals with the process and the procedures that the Nazir goes through. Because after someone accepts the Nazir, how do they have to live as a Nazir? And now what happens if they want to snap out of it? They have to go to the temple and bring sacrifices and shave their head, etc. So it doesn't belong at all in the book of or in the section of, of matrimony. And if you look at the structure, at the, at the, at the, at the, um, uh, uh, at the order of the books of the Talmud, you have the book of, of Leverite marriages, Yevamos, the book of Ksubos, which is mar- marriage documents, uh, you have Nidarim, which is vows, Okay, you have Nazir, which is the book of Nazir, and you have Sota, the book of, of, of adultery. What happens with, when you have a uh, Adultery or alleged adultery. So the Talmud asked the question, the very first page of the Talmud, it says, why was the book of Nazir placed adjacent to the book of Sota, which talks about uh, adultery? Why were these things, why is the book of Nazir out of place? And it says, to teach you a lesson, if someone sees a incident of adultery, or if someone sees the ramifications of adultery, they have to make on themselves a vow of a Nazir. A Nazir is someone who wants to live an esoteric life, or at least for a minimum of 30 days. A life, uh, an ascetic life. No, esoteric. ascetic is the right word. Scratch that, please, uh, from the court. Uh, esoteric. Uh, esoteric is the wrong word. Ascetic. Uh, 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 that's, that, that's what a Nazir is. It's someone who wants to live for at least a minimum of 30 days on a higher level of kind of sanctity or holiness. Or, uh, uh, you know, just not involved in the base pleasures or you know, the base way. A minimum of 30 days. Yeah, well, sort of, you know. If you see an incident of adultery or the ramifications of adultery, you have to say, I am going to become a Nazir. If you happen to see your friend or your neighbor or your cousin going through a messy divorce, why? Someone was unfaithful. Says the Talmud, you have to say, this could happen to me. This could happen to me. Therefore, I am going to take some time to live a life that has no overlap with the frivolity that brings about adultery. Thus, I'm going to spend a minimum of 30 days not drinking wine. Why? Because drinking wine could potentially bring to that kind of uh, mistake that we will regret forever. But I'd be living that kind of a life every damn day because the more people you know, I mean, who does not know somebody that 
Okay, so maybe every day we have. Okay, maybe every day we have to take that lesson. I mean, but I, 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 let's let's try to zoom out of the the small picture. The big picture is what it's telling us is that the attitude that we have to have is when we see someone else do something wrong, we have to guard. We have to take a step in ensuring that we don't make that same mistake. Kind of building a fence around our own activities, and, but also it's 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 um, internalizing the lessons that we encounter, right? Applying what we see in others to ourselves, you know, I think that is the lesson of Yisro, and that is probably the most important lesson of all of Musar, and that is where I can't tell you how many times I've I was studying with one of my uh, students on Tuesday night, and uh, I don't remember how we were studying some Talmud in Sanhedrin, and he tells me, I and I, I can already tell, like I, I can tell where he's going because I've heard this so many times before. He's like, how do I? What do you do with someone? Who did something wrong and refuses to recognize it, you know? And I'm like, I, I, and I know that he's recently, well, not recently, what two years ago, he had a divorce. I'm like, I say you're probably talking about your ex-wife. I assume he's like, yes. I, I knew that because I've heard it so many times before. Where people say, someone did something so wrong to me. How do I get myself to forgive them? I've never heard someone say, I did some, something so wrong to someone else. How do I get forgiveness? Because we have a tendency to take the misdeeds of others, and that is a deal. But us, it's very hard to self-critique. It's very hard to self-critique. I'm not trying to say that he's any worse than I am. I think I'm guilty as charged. I think we're all guilty as charged, because that's the human condition. Musa is trying to change that. Musa is trying to tell us when you see the misdeeds of others, someone you're not even related to, you happen to chance upon a story of adultery. You happen to be there where the proceedings and the process of what we do in a case of adultery are ongoing. You automatically apply apply to yourself. It has nothing to do with you, right? Nothing. It could happen to me. And in any time you see any other, uh, any incident of negative character, of bad behavior, what typically what we would do is, oh, I can't believe that this guy, you know. Had a society like who are your parents? That's the kind of question we ask. You know, <laughs> who raised you? You know, that's what we typically do. The Torah tells us, and the Musar attitude is, and say, okay, this could happen to me. How do I make sure that I'm above that? Does the Torah suggest that you can get past adultery? Because I know we spoke about adultery as being almost a deal breaker. Yeah. Well. The Torah says that um, should someone commit adultery, well, remember, adultery is one of the things that under a Jewish court is, is, is capital punishment. Although I don't know that that was actually meted out. Well, well, capital punishment was almost never meted out. As we know, you have to have two witnesses, you have to have forewarning within five seconds of the event, we have, someone, we have to have someone... Uh, accept upon themselves and say, I'm doing it despite the fact that I know that I'll get executed. We have to have the cross-examination, the interrogation. The investigation is so rigorous uh, where we isolate the witnesses, we intimidate them, we threaten them. Of course, I always love that we blame the man more than the female. No, but they're equally equally liable. Um, um, So yes, but it does have a degree of finality. In fact, what the Talmud does say, just talking about uh, a verse... Uh, in scripture that says, Someone is so perverted it's impossible to fix. It talks about there's, there, there are some times where something is beyond, un- repair. beyond repair. And it does mention adultery in an instance where that bears a bastard, as we say. 
However, it seems like, or when someone commits murder, gives a few examples of things that are so irreversible that the uh, there's no way to remove that kind of the, 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 that misdeed. It has a lasting effect. But uh, you know, we say everything. People do a lot of heinous things, and the Torah provides an avenue. Uh, the Almighty provides an avenue for for tshuva, for repentance. And Jewish law provides an avenue for adultery. In what in what sense? Can you if the I mean, one that was a, that was the victim of adultery, so to speak, forgives you, and then you would tell because it's a sin against both God and against the person. That's right. right. So, That's right. That's right. So you have to atone with God and with the person, right? Well, what, what well what what the verse says is that when a when someone commits adultery, they um, may under certain circumstances be prohibited. Um, from staying married to their wives um, or to the husbands, um, or they may, and for sure, they're not allowed. Should they get divorced, they're not allowed to marry their uh, the person that they committed the um, the act with. So in theory, so someone can say, uh, you know what? I commit adultery. I feel bad. Take half my money, and I'm going to marry this girl." Can't do that. So then, that would discount the almost the capital punishment art, because obviously, if you're well, capital punishment almost never happens in Jewish law, um, in actuality. But it does underscore the severity that Torah does uh, place on 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 that kind of behavior. Either way, Musar at large, I think that's a very important lesson for us. When we talk about Musar, uh, what we mean is the ability to self-analyze. Uh, self-assess, self-critique. And this is not an easy thing because the second you are told by someone, by the way, you should know that you have X negative character. Instantaneously, you're going to try to justify yourself. You know, how do you, I had this this week, someone sent me an email, a very biting email. And, um, and my first instinct was, well, uh, you know, like, why didn't you make a certain phone call? Whatever. So uh, my first thing is, well, I tried to call him three times and I played phone tag. That, that was my first response, like to try to justify myself. But then I said, no, 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 he's right, and I'm wrong, and that's painful. But the, the correct response is to admit that I'm wrong, and and you know, and eventually after I got that email, the next day I sat down and, made the, and finally made the phone call and spoke for the half hour for the person he's to speak to. But my initial knee-jerk response was trying to justify it. Why did I do that? Because this email exposed negative character. To have your negative character exposed is painful. Thus, to avoid pain, humans, like babies, try to avoid that at any cost. It's one of the basic characteristics of humanity is that we avoid pain. Children Brian do that. Williams is a good example of that. Who? Brian Williams. Yeah. Well, we'll see. You don't know. I mean, that could be longer. <laughs> Two weeks. Well, but if the, yeah, but if this investigation shows more that he did than even we know now, then it might be longer than two weeks. Who knows? But adultery is with a married woman. That's the definition of it, isn't it? If you commit, com- committing adultery is with another married woman. Yes, yeah, so by Torah law, by, Torah, is, law. by Torah law, 
It doesn't say anything about fornication. It talks about adultery. Oh, well, married you know, woman. People, well, obviously, people slept with each other who weren't married in the Bible. So. Yeah, remember, yeah, that's not so that's, 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 that's not, not adultery. That's not adultery. Of course not. That's not adultery. No. That's just Maybe Pat uh, Robertson would say it's not right. But, yeah. you know, it's, Wait a minute. Back up a second. Yeah. Say again the uh, what your definition of adultery was. I Intercourse was... out of marriage is not adultery. Correct. Assuming no one's married. That's correct. Thank you. But if... one of the partners obviously has to be married. Well, uh, yes, to, for adultery to happen. Both do. Well, wait a minute. If That's one is not I'm one saying. is married and one isn't, then only one is committing adultery, right? Yes. Okay, okay moving right along. <laughs> okay. So, as uh, so I was saying, so yes. Okay, you're suggesting that they both have to be married for it to be adultery? Am, am, am I understanding you I don't know. No, I think he said I, uh, that, no. If for both of them to be a, 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 either way, e- either way, we don't encourage it. <laughs> why? Why? I, didn't why, why, why I, said, I said either way, we don't encourage it. <laughs> okay, yeah. moving right along. So, um, so yes, I, I, I think that <laughs> I think when we talk about Musar, this is probably you know perhaps the most important lesson, and that is. To and I said it's not easy. So if someone else exposes your negative character, you're automatically going to try to justify it. That's because it's going to happen through cognitive and conscientious application. You could say no, 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 they're right. You could admit that, but that's not an easy thing. All the more so, you are not going to have the tendency to apply to yourself that same self-critique. So I think if we take one lesson out of today's discussion, it should be somehow to try to incorporate the lesson of Jethro and the lesson of, that we learned from the Talmud of, 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 of a Nazir, wherein we should try to self-analyze as difficult as that and painful as that is to try just to open up the, you know, the can of worms within our own self and our character and to try to, you know, to come to terms with and to be exposed to and to be comfortable with the fact that we have shortcomings. Everyone has shortcomings. But as humans, we're obligated to try to address those and perfect them. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a very it's essentially it's kind of similar to what we said earlier about someone who lives a life uh, espousing an ideology that comes shattering down to the ground. It's that same. How do you live with yourself now? Like, how do you live with a admission to the previous reality that you lived by being a total farce? Similarly, it's the same. It's the same thing. The reason why you would try to justify in that instance would be in this case. Say, you know, when you come to the realization, uh, or it's it's brought up to you that perhaps you have character that is less admirable. Um, w- what that does is it takes your self perspective or self evaluation, how you see yourself, and suddenly, you know, we kind of all think we're pretty good guys. You know, overall, I'm pretty good. 98% good. You have good intentions. <laughs> um, 
and suddenly, whoa, I have a leering hole in, in who I am as a human. I don't want to have that. I don't want to live with that, you know, with, with that knowledge. So that's why we would cover it up. So the first lesson is going to be in all of Musar is to, to learn how to open up ourselves to self-analysis, self-critique. And thus, on only after we do that, only after we apply the lessons, the critique and the lessons, uh, can we be successful in our journey of trying to perfect ourselves. Moving on to patience. Patience and anger. Um, I, I think when we talk about this particular characteristic, I think it's so, so crucial to um, realize the importance and the severity and the gravity and the enormity of how vital this character is to us to have successful lives, happy lives, harmonious lives. I, I believe, and we can try to demonstrate this, that if someone wants to have a happy marriage, it's only possible if they are grounded in patience. In, in patience. Grounded oh. in patience. I think for someone to be a good parent, you can only do that if you have patience. To be a good friend, to be successful in your professional life, to have any sort of interpersonal interactions, it's only possible if you have patience. Also, we'll find that at the root of almost all good character is going to be patience. It's going to be linked to every other positive characteristic. And the opposite of impatience is going to be linked to, linked to arrogance. It's going to be linked to, uh, to, uh, to be stingy, to, be, uh, to get angry, as we'll see, of course, to be narcissistic. Right? Someone who's impatient is narcissistic. It's the same thing. If you're impatient, you're likely to be angry, right? If you're, you know, if, if you care only about yourself, you're likely not to care so much about your fellow, right? All those negative characteristics are really rooted at the same core. It's all I care about is myself. I'm, I'm self-centered. I'm, you know, I'm selfish. Thus, all I think about is myself. Thus, when someone it, it does something a little bit you know, in a way that I'm not perfectly pleased with, I get impatient with them. I perhaps get angry with them. I think of myself, you know, I'm the top of the world. I'm, I'm, I'm haughty, I'm arrogant. Thus, all the negative character are linked, really, uh, at the core. And, posi- and for, you know, the positive, or conversely, the positive character is all going to be linked with the opposite. We, we say that uh, man is presented in the world and there's a spectrum. You know, you have the body and the soul. Right? The body is very base. You know, the body is... Um, just a, a, a receptacle, a vessel containing all the negative character. Yet we have a soul. And what's the soul like? The soul is like the Almighty. The soul is linking us to the Almighty. Once we open up our heart to the Almighty, once our soul has a say in the matter, then of course we should be kind. You know? Because that's what, you know, that, that's emulating the Almighty. That's what the Almighty wants from us. And that's what's right. You know? Of course we cannot get angry. Well, I, I can only get angry if I feel like there's injustice being done. Or I feel like what my needs or what my uh, desires at this moment are not being met. When I realize that the Almighty is involved, how could I possibly get angry? How could you have any arrogance? Arrogance is the opposite of faith. Because if, if you realize that the Almighty gave you everything you had, well, how can you possibly uh, ascribe or have any pride uh, in your own personal gifts and accomplishments when you realize that the Almighty is holding your hand all the way through? Thus... Uh, thus, we say that this, uh, this, uh, 
the these this 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 spectrum is really at the core of every character, and I think patience is a very good way to start because you know one of the great Musser masters said that patience i think patience is maybe ground ground zero of this world and this character that we want to build via our Musser studies you talking about Lozato? Well, I'm talking about I, I'm talking well, Luke, well, no, who said that particular sentence? Yeah. But uh, yes, when it, when you talk about great Muslim masters, that's where you start with Lutzato, 1707 to 1746. Only lived 39 years and wrote like 150 books. Well, it's his, insane. His, his text on watchfulness, yes, is, is yes, a critical point in the whole Musar teaching. Oh yeah, but of course. he would not. He would say it's the most important, but the fundamental Musar teaching is humility. That's at the top of the list, right? Yeah, Nova's at the top of the list. It's the bottom. It's the foundation. Um, what uh, what Dick is referring to is perhaps the number one book in all of Musser literature. It's called The Path of the Just, which is not the best trend. Yeah. Not the best. I know the, the, the book was called Path of the Just. They just recently, the past couple of years, reprinted it, and they called it The Way of the Upright. Oh, because yeah. Misila is, is a way or a path. I think that yeah. one's the trail, perhaps. So Misila. And Yashar means straight. That's probably the best way to say it. I think when I publish it, I'm not going to call it not the path of the just, not the way of the upright. I'm going to call it the trail of the straight. I guess straight maybe has other connotations. So. Yeah, they did it just a couple, a couple of years ago. Um, a much better translation, in, in my opinion. Uh, Path of the Just. Path of the Just. Path of the Just. Lusato. Or, yeah, Lusato. So what, what the book is based upon is a statement of the Talmud of the book of, of Rosara uh, 20b, uh, the statement of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair. Who is Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair? He is someone that Talmud tells us all other stories about him, that he was once walking and he had a stream in the, in, in the road and he decides, I don't want to walk all around the stream and he split the water, you know. That's the kind of uh, uh, character we're talking about. Who we also have a great story about his donkey. The donkey of Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair was stolen. The donkey was stolen. Someone stole him, and he took the donkey away, and he tried to feed him, and refused to eat. Refused to eat non-kosher food. Refused. Like the donkey of Pinchas ben Yair, and the Talmud, like always, says, "What you know? When people would talk about their own humility, they say, listen, I'm not, I'm not even.'" A, I'm, I'm, I'm not even like a human. I'm like a donkey. But I'm not like the donkey of Rabbi Pichas Ben Yar. I'm a regular donkey. <laughs> so, um, so he said his teaching in the, in the book of Zara is this path, this ladder to greatness. And it starts with Torah. And Torah brings to Zihirus. Zihirus means watchfulness. And that brings to Zerizus, which means to be, uh, to be uh, uh, Zerizus means to be alacrity. Carefulness, and that brings to uh, to nikius, cleanliness, and that brings to precious and etc. One brings to the next, and and, yeah. and you know, and he's and he basically you read the book, and he starts with the book saying, "Listen, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know. Everything that I'm telling you, you know, but I'm just reminding it to you." And he basically outlines the path of you starting from ground zero and reaching at the top to Tchiasamesim, to resuscitating the dead. You want to know how to do it? You know, it's like a simple pathway to prophecy. Very simple. All you got to do is follow the steps, you know, one after the next. Probably steps aren't that easy. Alan Marin has put out a a, a good book called... um, Climbing Jacob Jacob Ladder. Holiness every day. The way of holiness. holiness. I'm sorry, I had a stroke about a year ago, and I, I, I lose my train of thought from time to time, but uh, 
Alan Marinus is one of the contemporary teachers of Musar. The Musar Institute. Yeah. That's his uh, organization. So I think when we talk about patience, it's a very, you know, we look at, we look at this, this world of good and negative character, and we see really how there's, you know, it's different elements of, of positive and negative character. But I think one of the best places to start is going to be, is going to be patience. Now, the, uh, the crown jewel, as we said, of positive character is, is humility. Here we're talking about Moses as being the most humble of men. You know, why, are we, why do we find out about Moses' humility, not his kindness, not everything else? Because all that's included. If someone really achieves humility, by definition, they have everything else. Because like we said, it's really to the positive man of character. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, these are opposite spectrums. It's, are you with God or are you just, are you all soul or all you, all a body? If you're all soul, then that's humility. But you also have kind, kindness and patience and everything. I think our, the first step in the right direction is going to be patience. Now, at the other end, at the other extreme, is going to be anger and arrogance. They're, 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 they're the, the co-conspirators uh, at the top of the, uh, of the dark side. Uh, it's, going to be, it's, going to, it's going to be those two. Talmud says, if someone has anger, has anger doesn't believe in God. What do you mean? You see angry pastors. <laughs> um, uh, see God being angry. Well, okay, but remember, when was, that's a good point. Uh, that, but that's that's anthropomorphic. Well, anytime we give, we ascribe. We're not God, right. so I mean, it's okay for God to be angry. No, it's a little more nuanced than that. It's it's if you accept the Jewish definition of God, it's not it's not, it, it, it's an impossibility for God to have anger because God does not have parts. God God doesn't have emotions or temperaments. Thus, this is the first page of my mind. It's literally the first page. Um, it says, you know, that the Jewish belief in when it says that God, the hand of God doesn't have a God. Well, I said the hand doesn't have a God. Sorry, let me slow this down. God doesn't have a body. Thus, the, the eyes of God are watching Israel. The hand of God. God took the Jewish people out of Egypt with an outstretched arm. What does that? What does that mean? Obviously, it doesn't, God doesn't have an answer. It's 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 a it's a, it's a figure of speech. Right. Uh, it's an anthropomorphism. Thus, when we say the Maimon, this is the first page of Maimonides. Literally, turn the I think it's the second, the second page in some editions. Uh, turn the page, and he says, "Well, what do you do if you accept this definition of God, not comprised of any parts, not linked to time or space? Well, then the Torah says a lot of things that seems to run in you know direct opposition to that." Hand of God, finger, finger of God, the Espol of Kim, finger of God. Well, so he says what that means, it's, like we said, it's a, it's a figure of speech to speak to us the way we understand. When it says that God is happy with us, it doesn't mean God could be happy or sad. God could be angry or tranquil. Right? God could be good or bad, you know? Yet it says that God says, I will show, you know, wrath upon you, right? Well, what does that mean, guys? God can't get angry, by definition. What it means is that his behavior towards us is going to be one of anger. Thus, if God punishes us, or what we perceive as being punishment, well, we'll get to that whole discussion. Does God have a yes or hurrah? No. What? <laughs> Absolutely not. A bad inclination. <laughs> but you know, there's also the element that um, they talk about the God of Abraham or the God of Jacob. But they also said that God revealed himself to different generations. Why would we have names for God? Whether it's okay. Hello, Kim, or the Tetragram, the ineffable yeah, name of God, of course. Multiple 
name. That's right. That's right. But but remember, this it's 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 this is this is a very subtle and nuanced distinction because it's very easy to say, "Well, God has different names and different characteristics," and that's true. But we have to make this very very clear distinction between essential characteristics versus characteristics in the form of a behavior. So if God treats us humans, I got to need a second. Um, if God treats us humans compassionately, we could say God's compassionate. And that's how it's presented in the Torah. But uh, on, a, on a theological level, God is not compassionate because by saying God is compassionate, you're saying God has characteristics, which the Jewish definition of God uh, uh, clearly does not provide room for. Attributes. Okay. Yes. For him, when he has attributes, that also means he behaves in a way yes. that if we, as humans who do have attributes, if we were to describe that, we'd say someone has attributes. Right? If I'm a kind person, I could be unkind. I could be kind. And well, if I behave in a kind way, I'm a kind person. Right? If you see, see, yeah, doing charity, be nice, going to visit the sick, kind person. Right? As a human, that's that, that's what works. If you want to talk to you, when you got to explain God's kind, you say God's kind. What, what re, in reality, what you're saying on a theological level, the very subtle difference, very important to, 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 uh, uh, to, uh, to make this distinction, is that God is not kind. God behaves kindly. However, in order to tell that to us mortal humans, the Torah chooses to go the route that we understand that saying God's kind. But doesn't it say that this is mine? Well, it says a lot of things. So, there's, there's many anthropomorphisms. God's attribute, attributes are the way God behaves. Essentially, God doesn't have attributes of anger. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's a subtle distinction. Yeah, I mean, I've heard some Christians say that, that they quoted what Janet just said about vengeance is mine, which, and they say they use that as an argument against today invoking the death penalty, uh, which, you know, God also says you shall take a murderer from my very altar to die. Now, is there a contradiction there? Because he's commanding us to do that. Not That's what that. happens when people try to interpret the Torah on their own. <laughs> they have no idea what they're doing. Fight or flight. Absolutely. So this is going to be, I think, the next step that we're going to talk about. And I had this. No, I'm very happy you guys brought it up. Uh, and I'll just, I'll just throw in a nice Talmudic statement that I wasn't planning on sharing. <laughs> Probably I just didn't think of it. But the Talmud says in Tractate Yoma, I believe it's 41. I don't know if it's A or B, uh, but it's 41 Yoma. I feel very confident in saying that. Call Talmud Chacham she'enu no kem. Anyone knows Hebrew? Am I just saying Hebrew oh, for myself? Of course, like the back of our. Okay, I'll say it anyhow. I can make it up. I can say whatever I want. No one's ta- no one's telling me. Did you still say Hebrew? Talmud section. We will never. No one here will call you. Uh, well, okay, but I, I am saying it. Uh, I'm, it's going to be on my website. Thus, Hebrew speakers can verify that I'm not just saying gibberish. Call Talmud Chacham she'enu no kem v'no terkenachash. He no Talmud Chacham. 
Every Tamichacham, every Torah scholar that does not take revenge like a snake is not a Tamichacham. Now, if you were to ask me, Rabbi Walby, is revenge a positive characteristic or a negative characteristic? What would we say? It is a negative characteristic. But like he said, there is a time and place for anger. There's a time and place for revenge. So what we're going to have to figure out is how do we turn on the switch of doing the righteous anger, being angry at injustice, being angry at, at people doing evil, being angry when it's appropriate to be angry, yet not be angry when it's just our negative character. So I think once we are able to have that balance, to have that composure, to have that um, ability to evaluate and assess, not just impulsive anger, but once we incorporate this patience into our character, we'll have the baseline on which we can make the deliberation necessary to decide, should I get angry or should I not get angry? Thus, knee-jerk anger is almost always bad. But we could do, and we'll say, I, had this, I had this plan later, it says, um, there was um, one of the great Muslim masters had a special shirt that he would put on whenever he had to get angry. So, like, if whenever there was a reason for him to get angry, he wouldn't express anger. Oh, he start screaming and cursing and you know, shouting and throwing stuff. He would be very calm, very tranquil. He would go to what's called, change his shirt, Okay, now I'm angry. This is the righteous anger. Let it fly, right? Uh, there was another one who said, I, whenever he had to get angry, he would wait an hour beforehand. You know? <laughs> There's a million cases where you might want to get angry. Maybe you want to show your kid that this is the wrong thing. You know, your kid, I don't know, runs into the street, right? It's maybe it's not a reason to get angry because it's very dangerous for the kids to run to the street. And they could get hurt and that's not, you know. Or a kid does something that it's important for them to realize that this is wrong. This is not the way we behave. This is not what I, I expect more of you. You know, uh, this is not the you know. Should a parent feel the need that righteous anger is uh, is correct? So there's two ways to do it. There's a knee jerk re- reaction, which is probably the natural. It's just the inflare, flaring up of the regular anger that is latent within them, or they could wait and be measured, be patient. And then turn on that switch. Or measured anger. How do you learn to do that? Well, we have to be patient first. Well, well, when, you talk about, <laughs> when you talk about anger, uh, I used to be very angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd fly off the handle. In fact, when I got married, my mother said to my wife, don't talk to Dick until he's had a cup of coffee and breakfast. <laughs> Because I'd fly off the handle. And I started studying Musar back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I, I found a verse in Proverbs, 15th chapter, verse 1. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath. And that's an outward and an inward wrath that's there. And I made that a little sign. And I put it on my bathroom mirror. And in the car, when I drive, I would say, a soft answer turns away wrath. Whenever I felt angry at something. And I practiced that for a week. And then the next month I practiced it for a week. So this is and, and real Musar. Yes, that's real this, Musar. This is it, guys. Huh? We have a live living example. Yeah, that's, and I don't have anger anymore unless I choose to be angry. That's incredible. And it's, it um, works. It works. It's like magic. It works. <laughs> yes, it does. Fantastic. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm sorry? 
I'm sorry? Can you have the reverse that? Well, if someone, well, there's also the danger. Remember, there's a danger of being when someone is uh, desensitized, if someone is calloused, if someone is so tranquil that they're like dead to whatever happens to them, basically. Like they're, they're, um, Good, bad means they're, they're just dulled. That's that's the negative characteristic that could potentially come with 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 too much patience or too much, you know. Where you have to you have to take what happens around you. It has to be alive. It's like what we talked about Yisro. Like at, when things should make an impact upon you, but the response of anger, the knee jerk anger, is the wrong response. It's the patience response, but also it bothers you what what you see, but you're not reacting to it. So that 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 would be the danger. Anyhow, so Talmud says if someone has anger, they don't believe in God. What do you mean? This is where we got started, right? You see many people that believe in God and they're angry, or they could get angry. The answer is is that what happens when someone gets angry? You had a good word. You fly off. What do you say? To fly off the fly off the handle. Right? Someone who's angry feels like they lose it. Right? They're not themselves. This is. They're clearly not behaving rationally. There's something missing from their decision-making process. They do things that they would never do if they had to think about it. So I said, hey, listen, you have reason to be angry. What's the correct response, right? You, you, know, if at, you know, if you had all your functions, if you were in complete control of all your faculties, you would give a measured response. Yet when we're angry, we go over the top. We fly off the hinge. We, we fly off the handle, whatever... Metaphors we want to use, right? We're not ourselves. This was uh, one of the cool things I discovered. What it says is that when someone is angry, their soul is replaced by their Yetzirah. Thus, what they use to measure and to evaluate and to give a proper response to a certain situation Though that faculty is not there. Thus, they fly off the hinge. They act irrationally. Right? They lose it because they actually did lose it. This godly soul that's within them is replaced by something else that, in fact, the Talmud calls a foreign god. This is remarkable. The Yetzirah is called a foreign god. Lo b'cha el zar, the Talmud says, the verse says, you should not have within you a foreign god. So the Talmud asks the question, what's a foreign god within you? What's a foreign? This is Shabbos, the book of Shabbos 105b. Dan has a copy of it because Dan has the book of Shabbos on the verse on the pages that cover 105, I believe. 105b. It says, What is this foreign out within you? That's the Yetzirah. Thus, there's this element of godliness that we have as a soul, and then there's this element of a foreign that we have as a Yetzirah, an evil inclination. When someone gets anger, Angry, they don't have a God. They don't believe in God. What do you mean I don't believe in God? Ask me, I'll tell you, I believe in God. But you're angry. When you're angry, this godly element within you, you lose it. And it's replaced by something else. Thus, you don't believe in God. Thus, you don't behave rationally. You lose, you fly off the hinge, you fly off the handle, you behave in a way that is totally not the way that you yourself, in saner times, would argue is the, is the proper way to respond. To me, that was a big insight. So that's terrible. And in fact, the Talmud also says, also once again, underscoring the same idea uh, that, I don't want to get sidetracked with the discussion I see we're about to get sidetracked with when I say this. 
Kol Hakoes Kol Mine Gehenum Shultimbo. You hear the key word that you guys will recognize. Someone who gets angry, all forms of Gehenum dominate him, control him. What does Gehenna mean? Gehenna, yes, okay. that's what Talmud says. What does that mean? Let's let's not talk about what that means. Um, it means Gehenna. <laughs> okay. Gehenna means purgatory, whatever yeah. punishment. All kinds of punishment. Why? Well, all kinds. It is, maybe there's a punishment for every kind of misdeed. So there's a punishment for anger. The answer is because anger is a gateway drug to everything else. Like we said, all negative character at the top of the mountain of negative character. Who is the king of the mountain? Anger and like he has a sidekick we call arrogance. But they're really, linked, they're really the same thing. Thus, when someone climbs to the mountain and embraces anger, well, now they have everything else. They're in comp- they open the door to everything because all misdeeds are represented by anger. Thus, all kinds of Gehenna control them because all kinds of misdeeds are now open. Yeah, but the person that, that embodies the anger can yeah. push their button really easy. All you've got to do is say one thing and they, I mean, you control them. Well, because because it's it's because it's not hard it's not hard to flare up or to right. uh, or to uh, to bring about to surface. I told Dick one time I would love to have been married to him because I could have pushed him around easily. He didn't. Well, <laughs> anger. Try it. <laughs> what he told me was bring it. Perhaps. So they're living a lot, and they're not seeing, mm-hmm. seeing I, I, I like to, um, I like to um, describe anger as, well, as by way of introduction. The word that Maimonides used to describe character is deos. Deos. Dea. Yidia. What does that mean? It means knowledge. Mental precepts. Now, wait a minute. Is is character mental? No, I don't think anyone would really argue that it is mental. It's, I don't know, is it it's hardwired to our physiological being? Or is it mental? I don't know. This is a big debate. Where do my characteristics lie? So in, in, in Jewish speak, we say it lies on the nefesh. What the nefesh is is something I can't tell you. It's, well, in nefesh or neshama, it's not really the soul. It's... It's the spirit. They're not really spirit, because that's the ruach. Whatever. Uh, but uh, Maimonides calls it the no. neshema. Well, there's a neshema. That's, that's, right. that's right. That's right. And the nefesh. That's right. Thus, and and the in the midos, the characteristics are on the nefesh. Yeah. Maimonides calls it deos, which means knowledge. Deo means knowledge. It's it's in the brain. Why would the Rambam, Maimonides, the uh, nesher as we call him, why would he use the word for knowledge? To describe character. So, what was explained was that at the root of many of the characteristics is a cognitive element. Thus, an angry person is someone who in his brain, when they are crafting a response to a situation, 
imagery of anger is what they find. Thus, it, you know, it has a certain intellectual, intellectual, intellectual is the wrong word, but a cognitive uh, element to it where someone says, oh my gosh, this guy, this person did X, Y, or Z to me, they cut me off the car, or, uh, um, or they pull out the checkbook uh, on, by the uh, register, uh, or whatever, and like th- the way to respond to that, or God forbid there was a child, the kid on the plane who, who cried a little bit, right? What's the response? Like, what's the correct response? In their head, there's, there's images of, ang- of anger as, 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 um, as the response necessary. Like, what you're saying is that, well, maybe someone has um, influences that are contributing to that that are not necessarily part and parcel to their character. Yes, that may be the case. Say to me, um, yeah, go ahead. Rabbi uh, Zucker, 20, 30 years ago, uh, in a conversation with him about anger, he said, Why would you turn the control of your emotions over to somebody else? That's my mm-hmm. point. And, it, and that struck me like, Yeah, why would I do that? You get angry on the freeway, you get angry at all kinds of things, and you fly off the handle and so forth. And when he made that statement to me, Why would you turn the control of your emotions over to somebody else? I stopped. Yeah. A light went on. <laughs> well, was that around the same time you uh, heard the a soft voice uh, turns away of uh, whatever it was you cited? Yeah, soft answer turns away wrath. That's, right. that's the first verse of chapter 15 of Proverbs. Right. Was that around I, the same time? Yeah, it was when I was studying Musar and I was introduced to it. I had events in my life that they, there was an event that happened in my life that things were not going well. It had nothing to do with my marriage. But it was some investments I had made that all went sour. And I said, something's wrong in my life. I've, I've got to change it. And I went to Rabbi Zucker, who was uh, the rabbi of Teferit Israel up in Dallas at that time, uh, about 30, 30, 35 years ago, and was talking to him. And uh, he introduced me to Musar. And uh, I also went to Chabad. And uh, that's where I found Alan Marinus. And, and so forth, and I began the study of Musar from that that time because I didn't want to control anger; I wanted to get rid of it. And that this is, it's a different thing to control something, but I wanted to get rid of it. Where if I wanted to get angry, I could choose to get angry, mm-hmm. and it didn't happen as a result of somebody's control over me. And it works, and that goes for all the other character traits that we have, whether it's the opposite of gratitude is not ingratitude, it's entitlement. Uh, and and you, you, you find all these character traits of gratitude and humility and loving kindness, and you practice these things, and after a while, after a decade, <laughs> they, you find that it works. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, it's 11.30 already now. Um, 
I, I really feel like I didn't actually get to talk to my patients enough. I am ready to go for another half hour if anyone else wants to go. Yeah. We're good to go. We're good to go. Okay. Um, okay. So let's talk about about, about uh, so we have uh, basically. So we have this uh, problem of anger and. Uh, the response to that's going to be humility, but the first step in achieving that is going to be patience. Now, we're told that Moses is the most humble of all men. Rashi explains humble, patient. Additionally, we saw that Moses, as a young person, he went and he suffered with the Jewish people. And the word for suffering in Hebrew, as in bearing a, a, a load or a yoke, is the same word as patience. That is a big, big, big insight. Because what the Torah is really telling us is, as we know in the Hebrew language, the words themselves underscore their meaning. The word for Hebrew for patience is the same word as suffering in suffering dealing with bearing a yoke or carrying a burden. Sorry? That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, and the Torah tells us about Moshe. He was the humble, most humble person. As a youngster, he was uh, had this ability to suffer with others. Uh, additionally, we find um, where Moses is in Exodus. Um, Moses and Aaron were instructed on, on the people. Rashi explains what they mean to be to be patient with them. And lastly, I found a fourth place where the great leaders of the people are told to be patient, or they're demanded of patience is demanded of them. Moses is about to die, and he asks God to find a suitable replacement. And he says, "I want someone who could be patient with the people." So we find two things: we find leadership of the Jewish people linked to patience. Additionally, we find that the word patience has the same meaning as as suffering. So, you know, if you were to ask the question, what are the most important, most essential characteristics of great leaders? I remember they had in the uh, 2012 uh, debates, so they asked all the, whoever was left in the Republican field, how would you describe yourself in one word? I remember that. Someone was saying, like, responsible. I should remember that. Responsible, or I remember Mitt Romney said, resolute. And then Newt Green just says, cheerful. (laughs) 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 No one remembers that? I was like, Uh, you know, so, because everyone was like giving all these like heavy-handed answers, and he's like, oh, cheerful. Uh, So, when we think of a great leader, we think of someone who's charismatic, a gifted orator, influential. That's what we think of someone as being a, a great leader. I think a decision maker. You know, decision perhaps. But also, yeah, the Torah tells us that the, the way we define leadership is their capacity for patience. At its core, patience is the ability, long suffering, to deal with the things that irritate you in life and to accept that pain wordlessly and quietly. Could, yeah, well, okay, but could, but patient, but it also says anything of an extreme, it doesn't say like, like, 
could, ex- could extreme We don't patients. accept evil, of course. Right. We said there's the dangers of extreme patients where that could so, result in... Uh, patients that oh, no, yes. is not accepted. Yes. Remember, we're talking about patients as a way to have uh, measured responses. When someone's impatient, they lose their decision-making ability because what happens after something ignites the anger or the impatience, the, uh, the response that is, like you said, not controlled by themselves, the emotional response that uh, results is generally either over, it's not, it's not a proportion, it's not measured. Thus, when someone has patience, they have the ability to make a decision to weigh their options. Thus, if anger is a response, right, you know, it's, we don't believe in appeasement, right? We don't believe in accepting evil, uh, you know, in, 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 not embrace, for sure not embracing, but even accepting that. We believe in, in find that. We, that's what we talk about the Talmud Chacham, the Torah scholar, who has to be able to be, uh, take vengeance like a viper, right? Because that's sometimes the correct response. So sometimes, do you, where do you find that? so-called happy medium. So well, it's not, a, it's not a medium. That's the point. It's two separate things. The patience enables someone to make the decision. Whatever the decision may be, that may be as extreme as being as the take the vengeance of a viper. Thus, it's, 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 it's not a medium. It's, it's, it's separate elements. So, so patience enables someone to have all the faculties to make a decision. Yeah, Whatever the decision may be. It's a decision, like he said. You're not giving up control of decision-making to your yes or all your emotions. You're making, it's all patience. Decision-making. I was going to say, patience is taking the reins it of the decision-making. exercise watchfulness. Yeah. Well, okay, but what, what do you expect? You're throwing in too many keywords. <laughs> since we're talking about leaders and everything, um, there was Churchill, who I consider a great, great leader, and there was Neville Chamberlain, his predecessor, you can make an argument that Neville Chamberlain was exercising a lot of patience with Hitler. And that, is that the right response? Uh, I think it turned out to be very much the wrong response. And uh, I, but, I but, don't believe that anyone would challenge that. Well, but, may, but we have the benefit of hindsight, because if Hitler would have but, gone and, away, but what was, uh, Neville Chamberlain might have been the hero today. But what, what was Churchill's attitude up till when he was appointed prime minister? What was responded to this 1937, 1938, 1939? What was he preaching? I think as loudly as he can. More, I think he was a little more well, but let's say he recognized it. He may have been uh, somewhat naive himself, but he recognized he 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 eventually preached. Uh, no, he was the, preaching. I, I read the book. I read the Second World War. Well, no, but there are twenty-one volumes. He once spoke very highly of Hitler. Churchill once spoke very highly what about his speaking ability oh. and leadership ability because of what he did pulling Germany out of the uh, depression. Yes. So, you know, he, at the same time, I, uh, I think he was very, uh, very uh, uh, perce- perceptive of, of the, the danger. Of yes. Um, and I, so I read the book, remember, he wrote the book himself. Thus, he, you know, he has. It's been, uh, he has the say on the history, but it's it's one of the most definitive. The Second World War, exactly. The Second World War. Remember, Churchill won a Nobel Prize for literature. Mm-hmm. He was a painter. He was an architect. He was an artist, and obviously, he was a you know a, a great a great you know probably the most I'm saying in history a, a, a military leader. We have anyone like that? Um, you know, Napoleon. I don't know Alexander. They, remarkable, huge fan, all in. Someone told me recently that he was dyslexic. Is that right? 
don't know. That, to me, that's uh, surprising. There's even some rumors he might have been gay or bisexual. No, I have. Maybe. Who knows? Um, he didn't do well in college. But he, he, uh, he I'm saying clearly he was a, an intelligence, a genius beyond description. Like he, he invented just the, his, the range of accomplishments that this guy, one guy had. He invented the uh, the system for large deployment of troops from uh, from uh, um, uh, uh, I guess uh, marine uh, vessels, thus ships. So the landing in Normandy, whatever um, I don't remember the details of. He invented that. Like he came up with prototypes and invented. Like he he was a crazy mania. He like he's the uh, Probably a, a, a more fleshed-out version of, of 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 Roosevelt, of Teddy Roosevelt. You know, just a maniac. He would work till five in the morning, just insane, and just had energy, boundless energy, and was dealing with a million things. But he was. It makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but somehow that didn't uh, hinder him from. Yeah. Either way, so speaking, it's not just I didn't know all of the military stuff you just described, but but I mean his his rhetoric was so inspirational, insane, yeah. But he was voted out during the war. Forty-five, forty-five, yeah, forty-five, yeah, which shows the fickleness of 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 the constituency. Yeah, but he he galvanized people, the 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 English people, to to fight. To fight and to win and to, to win at all costs. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise. He used to go out with these things being bombed and put all the areas. He didn't hear anything. It's great. Yeah. So, a little bit like Gary Roosevelt. Yeah. Your personal politics is. Uh, irrespective of someone's personal politics, we could agree that uh, Roosevelt, uh, you know, uh, and Churchill shared some of the same oh, mach- machismo. I, I wish Obama would spend time reading Roosevelt's Day of Infamy speech. He should do it several times. Well, I'm, I'm not talking about. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about Franklin Delano. I'm talking about. Oh well, Teddy was Teddy. Yeah. Okay, well, well I, Ro- Roosevelt, but FDR was, Roosevelt was a sick old man. Which one? You talking about it, Franklin? Yeah. Well, later on, and, but oh, not yeah. early, not in the beginning. He was no, there not, not in thirty-eight and thirty-nine, and got to forty-four. He was. Sure, sure. He was well, we all, we all get, <laughs> we all, we all get, we all get old. Say what? No. <laughs> you know, um, we all get older. Come on, come on. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm, like this. I'm eighty-six years old. <laughs> I was, I was there. For every interpersonal relationship to exist and to thrive, I'll repeat that again over the din and cacophony of the voice. For every interpersonal relationship to exist and to thrive, every single one you demands patience. And now the closer, the more intimate the relationship, obviously, the more the need for patience arises. Case in point, there is an inevitability that when someone lives their life in very close proximity to someone else, as in the case of two spouses, they are going to discover characteristic about the other person that is decidedly negative. Like sometimes they can read you. Is that what you're going No, no, no. 
humans are composed by design by the Almighty as having negative character. The vast majority, overwhelming majority of humans don't really do anything to change that throughout the course of their lives. Besides from maybe, you know, do the minor cosmetic cover-ups to have uh, social acceptability. But the vast majority of us have negative character we haven't really addressed. If you're going to be in close proximity and live your life with someone else, you're going to discover character that you probably didn't know that existed before then, and that's going to be very negative in your eyes. For example, you find that your spouse is lazy. You find that your spouse is disorganized, always late, irrational, emotional, uncaring, right? Any one of these characteristics is something that you will almost invariably discover about your spouse. What are you going to do? How are you going to live with this person when you realize that they have this negative character? You have a few options. You could demand they change, but remember, most people never change. And that uh, friction that's going to, uh, that's going to uh, emerge with you demanding they change, them not changing is going to be a source of, uh, of, of a contention, but also frustration. And if you are probably going to be honest with yourself, you realize that you probably haven't changed that much yourself. Thus, demanding so much of your spouse is unfair. And you, if you were to be fair with yourself, you realize that you also have negative character. So are you guys just going to live separate lives in separate rooms, separate bank accounts, and just separate lives? Or are you going to get divorced, God forbid? Or are you going to have patience? And going to live and suffer and tolerate the misdeeds, or not the misdeeds, or the negative character of your spouse. Those are your options. Really, essentially those are your options. Sounds Either good. have separate lives legally with divorce, separate lives practically in every way aside for a name, just all states, they married for the kids. Suffer, suffer with frustration and contention, or suffer wordlessly with patience. Those are your options. No, uh, is that the only... One big yeah. What's that? that is, you didn't even speak to the other partner about their... Limiting behavior. Yeah, communication. Said, Isn't that an option too? I do believe that. I believe it is. That, that, that is. I still think that there's a likelihood that there's going to be something that's going to persist. And you bring it up. You, I say this with every, every, all the time. You know, you say, you say, you really shouldn't be eating that. You know? And. I would suggest that different communication Oh, I would agree with that as well. <laughs> because ultimately, but, you will lead to divorce. Okay, okay, but I'm saying it's going to bother you. So maybe you'll either communicate it or you won't communicate it. And what makes that work? What is going to cause the marriage to succeed and continue and thrive mutual, despite the mutual love? The mutual say. love, um, but or the mutual patience. Okay, there you go. That's patience. And living that with that. I'm sorry? <laughs> you, you have wells of patience. You didn't realize you had. <laughs> the three loves mentioned that the way you get past that is by just looking at their positive qualities. I think that's also and, a way to side step that. At the negative. Yeah. And could it also be what did, did you, you know, granted most of us probably don't make fundamental changes, but would you say the example you just gave about how your anger turned around, was that a fundamental change? 
Yes. Okay. And yeah, I, I recognized in myself that I had a lot of negative traits that were coming forth, uh, notwithstanding my wife's as well. And we've been married for 59 years. We're going on 60 now. Uh, Congratulations. And she's a Christian. My wife is. She turned the other cheek. Well, yeah. Uh, it's, it's an interesting. Uh, we've had a very interesting marriage uh, and four kids. But anyway. Uh, it was a it was a change in me, and I've seen changes in her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen more religious changes in her thinking um, than I have in practicalities, and I've learned to live with her mm-hmm. in practicalities. So, I mean, you know, Barbara and I have been married. We're going to be twenty three uh, years next month. I mean, and God knows we've had, but but you know, I. I, I know I've got flaws, and she's got a few too. And uh, you know, but I think most communication of it, has been one yeah. of our greatest values. Most of us know what's wrong with each one of us. Yeah. Most of us do. Mm-hmm. And if we really want to look at the inner person rather than the external person that we portray to everybody else, but internally, who we are, that, I know what I'm where I go wrong, and it's just a matter of trying to work to correct it. Uh, through the years, and um, I'm not through yet. <laughs> so, I agree with you. I think the desire to stay married and the desire to be happy and to find joy, I, I, I totally disagree with you. I, I think we do <laughs> have more than capacity to change. I think we do. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down, Janet. You, you said most of us Let's drop don't gloves here. I said most no, of us don't. I no, think we I do have a, of course, the capacity. I agree yeah. that we have the capacity to change. Of course, I never said that. That's, we wouldn't we have the structure if we don't have the capacity to change. I think we all you said we, you, we think, have the capacity, but we don't generally I do it. I think that there, within most of us, there are characteristics that haven't changed since we were teens at their core. Yes, we might have covered up a little bit, but we still have negative character that flares up every once in a while. I stand by that statement. Well, I, and I, I think <laughs> I, I, there's what you were saying, I think is very important because I think in a divorce, and I don't want to offend anyone who might have been divorced, uh, you know, but there is, can it be argued that there is a certain uh, selfishness if someone decides to just throw up their hands and, and give up when because I think the people that suffer the most in a divorce are the kids of course and the parents are you know they're thinking more of themselves in too many oh, yeah. cases pretty uh, and not the devastation <laughs> that happens to but you know, but what's the cause of most divorces the cause is usually unforgiveness and unresolved resentments are the basic but cause of but, but what's the root of that? Impatient. Expectation. I would agree. Maybe impatient. You're trying to say I'm trying to say yeah. that the first step, I, remember, I, I preface this by saying, of course, there's more advanced level, but the first step of living with someone else is the ability to tolerate their quirkiness. Mm-hmm. Thus, and I call that patience, okay. tolerating their quirkiness. Yeah. I said, I'm saying, it means to bear, to suffer a little bit. Obviously, it means to suffer is a heavy word. I don't like but it means to, I know, I don't like tolerate. it either. Carry the weight. So that they, and, and the re, yeah. to, tolerate. Tolerate's a better word? Tolerate. We agree tolerate's a better word? I said he did. Which word do like tolerate. So which word do we like? Do you like to be tolerated? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> no, but it's a part of, well, I mean, well, so much, I think you, it's maybe easier to see it when you think about parenting children. Like, there's all kind of stuff I tolerate from my children, and it doesn't mean I love them any less. It's just I see them for the undeveloped 
irrational people that they are, and I choose to love them in spite of that and have patience with that to a certain extent. You know, mm-hmm. if, am, I, am I making sense? You like, yes. Well, I, I feel... Tolerate it's not necessarily a bad word. Like, there's a certain element. And I think, you yeah. know, because with children... No, not to make a fuss. We say that's a better way to say it. Not to make a fuss over every little thing. Every time the... 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 Uh, the... The... the, uh, the um, toothpaste cap is not done or every time the shower is not left the way you like it or every time the garbage is not taken out or every time you leave your your supper on the your your plate on the table every time you don't make your bed yeah. every time you roll your sock into a ball and throw it into the what's called and don't pull it out like that and make it easier to right? every all these little things that happen in life right? don't make a fuss over it don't make a big deal out of it of course these aren't the most deep rooted things but if these things are something you just can't you can't live with it being completely perfect means if you can't live unless it's completely perfect you're impatient right you can't tolerate whatever you want to tolerate not make a fuss whatever word we're going to use to be happy and to get past the little things in life that irritate you that rankle you to get past that is patience of course it's not the most deep-seated issue of course not it's the first step the first step to the higher level call that we call humility is going to be this simple thing of patience learning to deal with life when it's not exactly the way that you envision it to be or the way it ought to be so like we said i think like uh like dick demonstrated that the best way to do that is to try to train yourself in situations or to, to, to incorporate within yourself that, you know what, it's perhaps, you know, the best way to respond is patiently and to practice that. You know, I, 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 I perhaps want to propose that maybe, you know, for me, the thing I'm most impatient about is which line at the checkout counter is the shortest. And I can make calculations based upon how many people, which I think is short-sighted. It's not about how many people, it's about how many stuff you have in Exactly. Yeah. You know, you gotta look. It usually doesn't work when you go to the next line. You know? It never works. I know. And it's like, but sometimes you see five people, but really you, you could tell from their body language which two people are together. <laughs> uh, thus, it's only really one cart, and which people are more likely to put up the checkbook, which people are most likely to fiddle with their, with, their, with their coins and not just swipe their card. Like, to me, this is a big deal. I think, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. I never erupt in anger over it. But internally, I, you know, it's something which, which I'm monitoring constantly. And I think maybe for me, it would be a good lesson in Don't patience. <laughs> oh, no, but that's a way to avoid the issue. But to take the issue head on is I'm going to the store and I'm going to go to the line that I assume is going to be the longest. And to sit there and to accept it and to tolerate it or to not make a fuss about it and not have it well within you that this is a big deal. right? And that is a small step in practicing patience. I, I think that's maybe a good argument. you know, Or maybe uh, a good exercise uh, to do would be to, I don't know, maybe go out for lunch or go out uh, for coffee with someone that you disagree with politically and talk only politics. And to accept that someone has, a, uh, has an other, uh, you know, and, and that's fine. And <laughs> What do you say about that? Never. 
You know, I enjoy, to tell you the truth, I enjoy talking with people more that disagree than than those that I agree with. Yeah, because... but they don't like talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, I, I, I like to think I, I can be disagreeable without disagreeing without being disagreeable. I would hold most of the I, I, you know, but I think it's I, I think Not it's sometimes when you see someone like when you see you know someone on the other side of the aisle mm-hmm. who espouses a position that you that bothers you mm-hmm. you know uh, you read an article that's uh, you know that's saying something you know which is embracing a position that it it bothers you right because you want to write an angry response where you're like why should I waste five minutes to make a comment I you know. Is perhaps the lesson in patience is is going to be to read the article and to not have that response. Yeah, next time you're in a conversation with somebody that is a Democrat, um, instead of uh, saying, "Well, we're going to agree to disagree," why don't you ask him, "How did you come to that conclusion?" And you know, it's just okay. Is that going to Settle the issue? No, but you're gonna you're gonna get an insight into that, and you'll emerge. And uh, you'll emerge a more patient person. About, you know, hopefully. <laughs> um, I, 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 you know, back to the whole spouse thing. Um, I, I, to just uh, just add a few little wrinkles to it. Uh, the word, the Hebrew word, back to the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for getting married is not to, in, in in English is to get married. In Hebrew, it's, it's no se isha. The word no se, which means to lift or to carry, to carry a woman. That's what it's, that's what it, that's what it means. Nisuin means, and um, there are those that want to uh, invoke this as saying that yes, marriage is accepting upon yourself to live with someone who's going to have, uh, you know, a, a, a quirks uh, about them and maybe. Uh, Attitudes or characteristics that are not exactly going to make it super duper smooth, and you're going to live with that. And um, the verse in in Proverbs, at the Proverbs, says "Tov la gever kiisa ol I think it's chapter nine. It's good for a man to accept a burden, a yoke, as a youngster. And the Midrash tells us what yoke we're referring to. It says the all isha, the yoke of marriage. Right. It says it describes marriage as a yoke. Right? Because it is carried with you the burden. Obviously, we're talking on a very simplistic level, you know. It's like, but the burden of living with someone who has a different response to a million different issues, and it's acclimating to a life with someone who is different. Every human is different, and at and the most intimate of relationships is going to be marriage. You live with someone your entire life. You sp- you, you spend eight, you know, uh, you spend the majority of your waking hours. Oh, I mean, not majority of your sleeping hours, but but you, your life you're spending with someone. And that invariably is going to, there's going to be differences. You're different people. You know, you have different perspectives on a million different things in life. Would you say it's impossible for someone to personally refine themselves without ever being married? With what? I would not, uh, I would not say that, yeah. but I, I do believe. Being married. I, I think being married is where you're able to see each other's flaws. You know, we, we, I look at marriage as the, as the arena um, where, where self-profession is most demanded of us. Because how are you going to make this work? Because you're, you're going to compromise. You're going to have to let yourself. You, you can avoid all your issues, but when you're married, you know, you're reflecting back and forth to each other. When you're single, you can be, be as selfish as you yeah, want. It's, it's, it's easier to, to be single, I guess, in that sense than married. Now, 
later in life, you may regret it. But, but yeah, you're avoiding well, a lot. I think, and you, if you avoid marriage, I think yeah. you've uh, got to accept the fact that most people will not change. And there'll be fundamental characteristics of the person that you're married to that will never change. Like, I can move in a pickup truck. My wife takes an 18-wheeler to move. And and she's a collector. And she's got stuff that dates back 30 and 40 years in files. Like, what good? Well, it's good information. And I can never do anything with that. And it used to drive me up the wall. But it doesn't anymore. Then, then you read uh, the property. I just read of 18 wheeler when we moved. <laughs> no, I said you read Proverbs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I read Proverbs. And then, then yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, even in New Testament theology, I think it's Paul and his letter to the Corinthians, where he said, being ye not unequally yoked together. So it's interesting yeah. that the word yoke is. Uh, what's the Hebrew word for yoke? Oh. Oh. Ol, ayin vav lamet ol. Just to conclude, O L E. I don't know. Ol. Ayin lamet and dalit. Ayin lamet and dalit. Ayin vav lamet lamet lamet. Okay. Not O. That'll be Ode. Um, I want to conclude with a few um, insights here. We find a statement in the Talmud and Shabbos. As follows, it says, the rabbis taught, people that are uh, denigrated, but don't respond. Someone castigates you and you don't respond. Someone who hears, who hears their um, shame and doesn't react. Someone who acts out of love and is happy with their yisurim, with their uh, suffering. Someone who accepts their suffering with joy. On them, the verse declares the and the lovers of God are like the sun that uh, the 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 sun that leaves in its full capacity. Now, if you guys remember, we talk about the sun and you know, the significance of the sun and how the sun Moses' face was like the sun, and the sun is representative of the of the, uh, of, the of the soul and the three things that are a measure of the world to come or the sun. But when we talk about the sun. It, it means spiritual. It's a reference to spirituality at its fullest extent. And what it's telling us over here is that the the full manifestation of human greatness could already be experienced in someone who is just able to tolerate or to live with a, a, a life that is not exactly ideal. You know, I, I I think that yes, is it the you know is it is it have you reached the promised land when you're uh, when you're patient? No. But Moses, we talk about Moses, what do, we, what do we call him out for? How do we signal out his greatness? The beginning of his journey and the end of his journey. Beginning of the journey is patience. The end of the journey is humility. That, that's what we talk about. Another great story here. This is a fantastic story. Um, Rabbi Moses Feinstein, we mentioned him last week. We talked about uh, abortion as in being the preeminent uh, source uh, for uh, modern responsa literature on the multitude of, of halachic uh, areas. Think of, of him as the most significant rabbi that we've had in America, for sure in America, uh, probably ever. Uh, yeah, we can safely make that argument. So um, in his house, uh, there was once a, a phone call. You know, they used to they used to say in America that all you need 
uh, to be a rabbi was a telephone. Because all you got to do is call Rabbi Feinstein. I mean, you know, that's all you needed, really, was a telephone. Um, so there was this uh, one time, he had a phone call in his house, and one of his students picked up the phone because he was there and the rabbi was busy. Uh, and the woman on the phone answers the phone and says, what time is candle lighting? Every time there's a candle lighting, every, 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 every week of the year, candle lighting time changes. What time is candle lighting? Uh, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. First, he says, can I speak to Rabbi Feinstein? Rabbi Feinstein's not available. Well, what can I do for you? Uh, what time is candle lighting? He says, uh, why don't you just get any one of a thousand Jewish calendars? It's candle lighting time. The woman tells him, I've been calling Rabbi Feinstein for 25 years. Every single Friday... To find out, it's not my car. Okay. To find out what time is candlelighting, and he never mentioned anything about calendars. So think about that. It's like the most precious time of any individual in the Jewish nation. Literally, this time is very, very valuable. This woman calls him up and says, "What time is candlelighting?" The great leader that he was, he would go to the calendar and tell her what time it is, and she called back next week. And the week after, the week after, 25 years, the same woman's been calling, what time is candlelighting? And he had the patience to deal with this irritant <laughs> that is this woman who just could do something so simply. Don't tell her, dear calendar. No. Deal with the people in life that, like that and that's patience. I think, and that's, that, that's a mark uh, of, 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 of one of the, uh, of, 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 a, of a great leader. Someone who's able to deal with the smallest of, of people, so to speak. Don't register on the, you know, not someone who comes with an entourage, right? Simple people. And to deal with them patiently and answer the questions and not tell them, oh, why don't you figure that out on your own? And I think that if we adopt this attitude, we do some sort of patient building exercises uh, we're well on our way to have more productive, uh, more healthy interpersonal lives, of course, with the relationships in our lives that matter the most, our family, our spouses, our children, but also our professional lives will be, uh, I think, markedly improved when we begin this journey of becoming a more perfect person uh, with taking the first step in becoming a more patient person. And, and that's that, guys. Thank you all for listening. And thank you for the suggestion. And next week, we will not be convening. We'll see you in two weeks. What are we going to talk about in two weeks? Uh, I don't remember. What's the schedule? Uh, <laughs> I will send out an email. It's always at the website under learn for